Built Not Born, episode 15. I'm Joe Chicarone. Thank you for joining us. Built Not Born is the podcast where each episode we interview everyday people living remarkable lives. Our guests have made their impact from the boardroom to the battlefield, from the jujitsu mat to the field of medicine. Today's guest is Marco, the Professor Perazzo. Marco Perazzo is a third-degree black belt in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, owner and head instructor of New Jersey Martial Arts, located in Maple Shade, New Jersey. Marco, known in the BJJ community as the professor, has been the corner man for MMA fighters competing in the UFC and in Bellator. Marco is also the co-host, or as he likes to say, the main co-host of the popular Ninja Rob podcast, where they discuss all things MMA. Marco, a native of South Philadelphia, spent his early years between his home in South Philly, visiting Argentina, where his mother was born, and Italy, where his father was born. After graduating high school with no real direction or long-term plan, Marco attended, then quickly dropped out of Temple University. Marco started working at a healthcare insurance company until one day in the early 90s, his life changed direction forever when he went over to a friend's house and watched a bootlegged recording of the first UFC match that showed an undersized Hoist Gracie easily defeating bigger, stronger, faster opponents using the then little understood techniques of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Marco described what it was like starting his BJJ training with Steve Maxwell at Maxercise and, and how he met Phil and Ricardo Miglaris, who he established a 30-plus year friendship and who he still continues to learn from today. Marco and I discuss his philosophy of life, which he carries into the business world and into his Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu Academy that's established on one thing, creating great relationships with everyone he works with. We discuss why a student-teacher relationship is built upon trust, and we get into what he believes are the amazing mental and physical benefits of training a combat martial art like Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. We get into what it was like to lead a small business through a global pandemic and how the pandemic taught Marco that when times get tough, it's no time to be a Boy Scout. Marco describes the rush of emotion of what it's like to walk your fighter into the ring of a UFC fight and why some of his greatest learnings in BJJ and life are from noticing the little details. We also discuss the professor's bout with COVID-19 that sent him to the hospital for multiple days and what his recovery was like. So thank you for listening and thank you for the 1,200 plus downloads of Built Not Born since it launched. I really appreciate it. To everyone who has texted me or messaged me with encouraging messages and even uh, some tweaks I need to make and some of the things I need to do better, I really appreciate it. Thank you for noticing. Thank you for spending some time listening to the podcast. So if you like what you hear, please hit the subscribe button. We have a bunch of cool interviews like this one to come. Enjoy my conversation with the professor, Marco Perazzo, BJJ Black Belt, entrepreneur, UFC cornerman, and the host of the Ninja Rob podcast. And remember, life is built, not born. Marco Perazzo, welcome to the show. Thank you. You're probably one of the few people that can handle my last name. So, <laughs> Marco, 
For the listeners who may not be familiar with you and your work, who are you and what do you do? I am a 48-year-old father of three, uh, husband and entrepreneur. I own New Jersey Martial Arts in in Maple Shade, New Jersey. I'm the head instructor there. I'm a black belt in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. I train Muay Thai in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. And I'm also the main co-host on the Ninja Rob podcast. There's a lot to unpack there. I want to get into your Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu journey, New Jersey martial arts, your, your time as an entrepreneur, how you started, you and Tim started the Ninja Rob podcast. I want to get into all of that. But before we do, I want to start at the way beginning. Where did you grow up? 17th and Morris in South Philadelphia. What was it like there growing up in that neighborhood? Man, it was it was great. It was like a little world in and to itself. Like I it is very odd growing up there because I would travel to Europe and South America, family vacations because we have my my father was born in Italy, my mother was born in Argentina, my parents met in Argentina. I, if I wasn't in Europe or South America, I was in this neighborhood in South Philly. So those were like the three places you could find me. But growing up in this neighborhood was awesome. It, it was a lot of great people, the typical South Philly experience, but just a, a good salt of the earth type neighborhood. The average person where I grew up, their average vacation was Wildwood or Ocean City, New Jersey in the summertime. That's like your average week at the shore. So you're winding up in Europe and South America. Where are you going in Europe? In Italy, mainly. Yeah. Going to Italy to visit my aunts, my uncles, my grandmother. So uh, to be in the town that my father grew up in and, and was born and, and to really connect with, with those roots and those parts of our family. What town, what, what part of Italy did he grow up in? So he grew up in Liguria, which is the, what they would say is the Italian Riviera, Northern Italy. And in a, a small town, two small towns called Sarzana is a small town and a bigger town called La Spezia. So it's where it's in the same region that Genoa is in. How about when you go to South America, where did you go? Where's your mom? So we'd go to Argentina, Venezuela. And then later in life, I did plenty of trips to Brazil, but as a young man, Argentina and Venezuela. So take us back to say uh, 10 years old at that dinner table in South Philly. What's going on there? Who's there? So 10 years old, it. I have an older brother, but at that point he was out living his life. So he probably wasn't home for dinner. So it was me, my mom and my dad. And if my dad was around now, he'd be 91 years old. So he was, he had me a little bit later in life. But one of the best memories I have about that dinner table is after dinner, just watching my dad with a, like a small glass of wine, cutting up pears dipping the pears in the wine and, and eating them. You're like you, you can't get any more. How great is that? Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. What's the most vivid memory of your childhood? Well, this is not going to paint my dad in a great light, but it was a beating that I took when I came, when I didn't, it's going to paint him in a good light and a bad light. It's a, it's a beating that I took when I came home after church we were supposed to go somewhere as a family. I decided that I just wanted to run around the neighborhood for three or four hours. Or no, I had to be home and we had to go to some function. I don't even remember the function. The second that I walk in the door, I start getting hit by my dad. And he had never really hit me. It wasn't an abusive situation whatsoever. But uh, 
in South Philly, a lot of these older houses had, we call them vestibules, a little hallway before you get in the house, maybe like five or six feet long. And I took a decent beating there. And at one point, my, my mother saves me by saying, don't hit them anymore. You might, and this is probably not the best word to use nowadays, you might make them retarded. But I later in life, I learned that wasn't, I didn't, he didn't hit me because he was mad at me. I'm starting to get choked up thinking about it. He hit me because he was afraid of why I hadn't come home. Like something living in the city happened to you. Yeah. And it, that the way that he expressed that energy of being so worried and scared about what could have happened to me because I normally came home right after church. So this was out of character for me. And so it was, he, he hit me because he loved me. One movie says not the beating you deserved. It's the beating you needed. <laughs> yeah. yeah, And you, you learn a lot about your parents later in life. Sure. You know, and, you, and, and that was one of those things where I learned that he, I never held it against him because what I did was wrong. And I know nowadays we don't parent that way, mm. but if you were born in 1930, that's how you parent it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for sharing that. It's a great story. So you get to high school. If we went back and asked Marco at junior year, senior year in high school, what he wanted to be when he grew up, what do you think he'd say? I'd have no clue whatsoever. Zero. Like I had no, like I had little to no direction and I had gotten into a really like the number one or number two magnet high school in Philadelphia for public in public school, public high school. And had been thrown out by my sophomore year just because I was cutting class and I wasn't going to school. I was just wasn't doing, I was given too much free going from like a, a Catholic school education mm -hmm. to now this public magnet high school where it's, you were expected to, to do a lot of things on your own. You weren't directed in, in certain ways. Yeah. Unfortunately, or maybe even fortunately, like I hadn't, I had no real direction. I had a great group of friends, but I had no clue what I wanted to. So when you graduate high school, what's your next move? So when I graduate high school, I do one year. And when I say I do one year, I was on campus for a year at Temple University. Mm -hmm. And again, it was, I never finished. I was asked to leave again. So I was thrown out of a high school. I was thrown out of a university, but it was because I wasn't putting the work in. I wasn't going to class. Like I was just, I, I, I don't know what it was, whereas I was just trying to be social and hang out with my friends. And then I couldn't figure out a way to do both where I could get the work in and also be social. And then I, I got asked to leave again. So okay, not so a you, fine academic career by any stretch. You could have dropped out of any college, but you chose Temple. Exactly. You know? <laughs> exactly. So you, you're asked to leave Temple. Is that like a letter or someone knock on your door? Or someone yeah. 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 So that's, I was still, I was living in my parents' house. It was a letter gotcha. that, that, that I got and I knew it was coming when you don't, when you don't go to class, and you're just hanging out at the student activity center all day with your buddies. I doubt that they're going to say, Hey, you know what? We see enough in you to let that fly come back for your sophomore year. Okay. So that you get that ladder and you got to move on from temple. What's your next move from there? Yeah. So I go, I, I was working at the time and I was just working a dead end job in a pharmacy, just helping out the pharmacist, running a lottery machine and going back to high school. So the way I got into it was it was central it is currently central high is that I initially didn't get accepted 
because there was one grade in the marking quarter that they were looking at that was low. And I really wanted to get into this high school. So I told my dad, I said, Hey, can you drive me up there? Because I want to talk to somebody in the office to show them, Hey, I, I took this grade from a D to a B plus, And this should like that. I, I'm deserving and worthy of coming to this high school. And what I went up there, I made my case and I got accepted. Right. They were, they, they listened to me. And I guess, I don't know if I impressed somebody or whoever I talked to, but that was a learning moment for me to, to really realize that life is about, it's not about, I guess in some degrees, it's about your grades. It's all this other stuff. But if you can make the right connection and you can have the right conversation, that's really going to help you along in life, in situations that if I just accepted that denial letter, I would have just gone to maybe the eventually the high school that I went to after I got thrown out. But I, I learned in there that I, I you can you don't have to accept the first no. So after that, working this dead end job, I made friends with a woman. Her name is Marcia Brewster Ford. She was a Caribbean woman. She used to come play lottery tickets, and she got to like me. And she says, "I'm going to get you a job at Blue Cross." I go, "I would love it. My parents would be ecstatic if I worked at Independence Blue Cross." So. She gets me a job as a customer service, a bilingual customer service rep because I'm fluent in Spanish. So I'm doing, I'm answering phones and helping people with their health insurance needs at, it was called Keystone. I believe it was Keystone first at the time. So that's what I did after I got uh, asked to leave. So what year is that? Probably 92, 93, something like that. I have to look back. Okay. So around that time, if you look on your website, uh, that's right about right before two things happened. One, you discovered uh, BJJ right around 94. And on top of that, you might have been 70 pounds heavier than you are now. I think you said that on your website. Right. I Now that you're saying this, it, I started that job in 94 because one of my current black, like black belts, we started in the same training class and we were in the training class together and I had a big duffel bag with me. And he says, what do you what's in the, what's in the duffel bag? And I go, I look at him like I'm holding like the nuclear football. And I look around the room and I go, <laughs> I, I do Gracie jujitsu. And he goes, that stuff that I go, yeah. And we became, we're great friends. He's one of my students now, but 94 is when I started at independence blue cross and I, or whatever the website says, I'm terrible at these kind of like exact numbers. And, but then also that's uh, when I started Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu as well. So I take it's max exercise at the time? Yeah. And what made you walk in? Before? So my journey started a little bit before that, where my childhood friend, his father had done judo maybe for three or four months. And we always knew of the Philadelphia Judo Club. So when his dad rented the UFC and recorded it on a top-loading VHS VCR, Mm-hmm. And I went over the next day to watch it. I was completely enamored. His son, my one of my dearest friends, had been doing judo for a while, and I was never interested. And he shows me this video, hoisting a gi. He goes, we do all those same moves in judo class, arm bars and takedowns and, and all this other stuff. And I go, I want to go tomorrow. That little Brazilian guy can fight like that. I said, so can I. And then I w- started taking classes at the Philadelphia Judo Club. And then one of the one of the black belts there, a guy by the name of Eddie Levine, who was a great friend of me at the time, said, 
hey, Marco, I hear you're really into that UFC. Hoist Gracie has a school here in Philadelphia. And then that's what led me to Maxercise. Do you remember your first time you walked in there, walked in the doors from Maxercise? Pretty, yeah, I'm pretty sure. It might be like an amalgam of the first couple of weeks. But- what was your first impression? You walk up, you walk in, you got walk up the steps, then you walk up the other set of steps. What's it like? It was exactly what I thought it was going to be in the sense of when I walked into the judo, uh, the Philadelphia judo club, it was a great experience, but it was very martial artsy in the sense of everybody was wearing a uniform. It was very formal. We said things in Japanese and I was like, man, this feels right, but it doesn't feel like, I don't like these guys are going to feels like they're doing a, a martial art and a martial sport, which is completely fine. Judo is beautiful and I love it. And I continue to have it be part of, of our training. But when I walked in to exercise that first class and I just saw that number one, the age of everybody was a bit younger, but also that level of aggression was a bit higher in the sense of you knew people were there because they saw that guy fight on TV and they want to fight like him. Yeah, that, that's such a great perspective. Of all the martial arts schools I've trained in, when you get to Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, the age is a little younger and the level of aggression is a bit higher. It's a, it's a great perspective. I never heard it articulated that way. T- take us through the journey of losing 70 pounds. So how did you wind up 70 pounds overweight? And then how long did it take? Because that's no small feat. So I tell my students all the time that Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is fun, but it's a lot more fun when you're better. So when you're good, Jiu-Jitsu is, is way more fun. So Steve Maxwell, who was the owner at the time, said to me, he goes, Marco, do you want to get good? I go, yeah. He goes, lose weight. He goes, if you lose weight, you'll be better at this. And that was my driving force. And, you know, I was a South Philly kid that didn't do any sports, that played Nintendo, ate cheese steaks, and my parents cooking and all that stuff. So athletics was never something that I pursued until I was in my early 20s. And I still, even today, I still struggle with my weight. I've never gotten as big as I used to be, but sometimes you might see me in six months and I could be 180. You could see me six months later, I could be 195. It's a constant battle for sure. So how long are you training till you realize, wow, I might want to do this for a living? I had no aspirations of doing it for a living, but when I got there and after a couple months, I knew I wanted to do it for a lifetime. So then... Once I threw myself at it and I knew that this was something that I wanted to do for a lifetime, an opportunity was offered to me to teach professionally through uh, a a very good friend of mine who has since passed away. I was working at Independence Blue Cross. So I'd gone from a customer service rep to a business systems analyst. So in five years, I'd gotten five promotions, right? So again, just working my way up, showing what I could do, networking, that, that kind of thing. And Joe Prioli says to me, he's like, I know you hate your job. Do you want to come teach at my school? And this was at the time was Joe Prioli's champion martial arts at Maple Shade. And I go, man, my parents are going to be pissed, but this seems way better than sitting in an office Monday through Friday. And that's how my journey started. What, what belt were you when this conversation happened? That's a good, I'm maybe possibly like a high blue, like a four stripe blue, or maybe a purple belt. But very early on, and the interesting part was that Joe, if you talk to anybody that knows, if you talk to Phil or Rick, was phenomenal. Like he would, I I would train with him and it was like, you would wonder, after you'd see us train, you would wonder, why does he have this guy teach, right? Talking about me. But then Joe says to me, look, I might be able to mash you up on the mat, but you have all of this wealth of experience and knowledge that you can share 
that I I want you to share with my students. And then it was also just like another eye-opening thing where, yeah, it's awesome to be the best guy in the room, but we also bring other attributes to a jujitsu school. You see that, po- that point in almost any sport where you look at, you take Larry Brown, the, the basketball coach, yes. or you take Coach K, and you take LeBron James. Who's going to win in a basketball? I think For sure, yeah, but, yeah. But who would you rather coach your child, the Olympic team, or who's a better chance of bringing like an, a, a team to a championship? Larry Brown or Coach K? Agreed. Yeah, yeah. no. And that's why sometimes, what, what's the old saying? Those that can't do teach. So mm-hmm. Also too, I think there's a perspective, and I can see this in me, where when you're the not the biggest, not the strongest, not the fastest, you have to learn it a certain way and you can articulate it and you have a perspective that someone who's 6'5", who's super athletic and can pick people up and throw them across the room, that you have a perspective that they don't have. Does that make sense? For sure. And especially because the narrative has always been that this is designed for someone smaller, weaker, slower, not for the big, strong, and fast guy. So that's why it always made sense that, all right, man, I don't need to be a hulking mass to make this work. I just need to be good. When did you decide to open up NJMA, New Jersey Martial Arts? How'd that come about? Unfortunately, Joe passes away. He had, had struggled with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and, and passes away. So there was a period of time that the, the I was running the school for the, so I was teaching and, and running the school. And at a certain point, I had approached him and said, hey, for me to be able to continue doing this, I would need to, like, I would, I would like to buy the school from you guys and take it over where I'm going to rebrand it and start it as uh, New Jersey Martial Arts if you guys sell it to me. So th- that was in 2006. So 2006, you, you buy the school, you, you yes. rebrand it New Jersey Martial Arts? Correct. How soon did it take for you to feel that it was your school and you rebranded it and it was going in your direction? But Joe had dealt with his, his cancer for a while. And so I was the main and the head instructor there for a while. So there wasn't, the, that shift had come more when it was champion martial arts, where people were looking at me as the leader of the school, unfortunately, because Joe was dealing with his health issues. When I took over, it was very much my school. Fast forward a little bit here. Now you t- had the guts to A, leave a good job. You got promoted five times at the healthcare company. You move on, you take a risk, like a purple belt, brown belt. You're not even a black belt yet. You start teaching then all of a sudden you buy the school. You're lucky enough to be in a situation where it's a successful school's passed on to you. You rebrand it. You take it to the next level. Fast forward to the year that just passed. All of a sudden, a hundred year pandemic starts by no one's fault, but mother nature. What do you do there? Then the world shuts down. You start the successful business. You took a chance. Then all of a sudden the world shuts down. Yeah. What, so what's that like? As that a, as a small is, business you know, owner. Out, outside of kind of dealing with something with one of your kids that you can't do anything for. This has probably been one of the scariest times to be an entrepreneur, like a, just a human being. If you're a business owner and you made it through this, I call it, you're a Bubba Gump, right? Like you made it through the storm and hopefully now that you could really get that launch pad and, and use this to springboard in, into bigger, better things. Right around the time of the shutdown, and so my school is in New Jersey, clearly called New Jersey Martial Arts. The day before I had gotten approval from the town to move my school into a new location and I needed to get different variances from the town, the things that you got to get. So I had gotten those approvals the day before. The next day, the whole state of New Jersey shuts down. Wow. So I was a little bit lucky 
in the sense of I was in not the greatest situation with my old landlord. And I'm not a big fan of the professional landlord. Like they're very tough to deal with, so forth and so on. And maybe I'm not the like who who knows? Maybe I'm not the epitome of the greatest customer that they want either. But anyway, I had been looking for new space. And the business had been going really well up until the beginning of the pandemic. I was like, man, month over month, our numbers are up and this is great. And I'm looking at what my lease renewal is going to be. And I go, any blip in the economy, and I may not be able to afford my rent moving forward. I was in a big facility on a major road, a lot of street visibility. I I need to hedge against an economic downturn and I I have to find uh, a much better rent structure that gives me the flexibility if something happens. Now, I was thinking of an economic issue. I was never thinking of a worldwide pandemic. But regardless, I was searching and searching for a new facility. Nothing really fit my needs. And I kept passing by this one place that said space available. I would drive around. There's no phone number. And I just walk into this metal shop and I go, hey, see, it says there's space available. And I go, I don't know who to talk to. And the guy's like, oh, you talk to me. An older guy runs the metal shop, owns the building. Great. Not a professional landlord, an entrepreneur that owns the building. So he understands where I'm coming from when I talk to him. Explain to him what I want to do. And he goes, yeah, I don't think that's going to work here. And I go, I was like, you know, nice. You do martial arts. This is more of an industrial space. I go, man, plenty of gym and fitness facilities are in industrial spaces and, and this and that. And I go, but if you don't want to rent to me, that's fine. And he goes, not really. So I said, do you mind showing me? So he's showing me the different equipment. And my father had been a machinist. So I had some basic knowledge of what, like what the machines were and what they did. And like, I'm always interested in learning new things. And if I didn't, it was just like a nice experience to walk around with this guy and he was happy to show me. And so we we walk around and I'm asked, oh, that's a break. That's a lathe. This is this. This is that. So by the end of him showing me around, he goes, you know what? He goes, come back to me after the holidays. And he goes, we could uh, talk about renting you the space. I think he says, I think it'll work. So again, just making a connection with someone, showing the time that I cared about what he was doing and what his business was went from a no to now, hey, you know what? let's consider this. Then I went back. He shows me an original space, man. I'm like, it's not ideal, but I'll take it. And then he shows me another space and I go, this is it. And then that's this, that's the space we got. And that the pandemic was helpful because we were able to do all the build out during the shutdown. So able to upgrade the facility. So there was one benefit to, to the pandemic. Going through COVID, which is the biggest lesson you had going through that? And I learned this from my, I always joke that Tim Carpenter is a really dear friend, but also my most fierce enemy. And he, he had said something, he goes, now's not the time to be a boy scout. Cause I had gotten so nervous about not receiving the continued support of the students that I was almost going to give the farm away in the sense of saying, Hey, if you guys continue to pay, blah, 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 to support the school, so I was basically asking the students to pay their monthly membership to keep the school afloat so that we could be in business. And then I would credit them their time when we open back up. 
and then also give them two weeks extra for, so if their expiration was January 1st, now it was January 15th, they got two more weeks of saying, hey, thank you for supporting us during the pandemic. And I had gotten very nervous at one point. I'm like, I I may need to offer more. And he goes, don't be a Boy Scout. What you're offering is enough. So that was one of the things that I learned is sometimes as much as it's uh, a friendly, touchy, feely kind of feeling at a jiu-jitsu school, the business is the business. And you have to be hard and fast with certain things. That's a good lesson learned. You've known the corner mixed martial artists and, and some really big fights and matches and UFC fighters. How'd you go from being an instructor, but to being a corner person? So I think that the, the big thing there is uh, relationship and trust, right? So it's the fact that you care that you want them to do well. They believe in your ability to train them and coach them, but they also want somebody there that's going to make them feel comfortable at likely one of the most dangerous times of their life. Being inside that Bellator cage or that UFC cage is scary and it's dangerous. One of the best things that I do, aside from the coaching and the teaching and all this other stuff, is make sure that when we're in the corner, it's very light, it's very loose, it's fun. Because the stress of it is going to happen naturally. We know that at 8.30, you're going to get hit in the face and knee in the neck and kicked in the leg. We don't need to be tough guys and you know, we'll play cards. We'll make jokes like that, that kind of thing. So I think they trusted me. They believed in me. They knew that I would keep it light, but also it was the, f- the feeling of camaraderie. You want to have people around you that you knew um, we're going to be there with you the whole time. Like when I corner some, you would think like, I'm like a guard dog. I'm with them the whole time. I don't care. There's nothing else that's important during that time other than being with this fighter to make sure that I could help them with whatever they need. So total present moment, focus all in what's exactly in front of you. Nothing else I, matters. I, it, it, it can't, it, it doesn't. Can you remember the first time you left the locker room with your fighter walk into the ring? Alexis Ramos, who was one of my students at the time, he was making his MMA debut. And if, if he was nervous, I was equally as nervous. Cause like, I, you just don't know. This is the first time you take a fighter from not ever having to fought to into the, and, and he was, he fought in the ring and you're like, what if something really terrible happens? Did we do the right thing? Did we train him correctly? So forth and so on. So it's such a, a, a rush of emotions, uh, a ton of fear a ton of worry, but also exhilarating. Like I wouldn't trade any of those emotions for anything. A few moments before, is there a pep talk before? Do you leave them alone? Like what's the, yeah. So it's really the, I, you can't be all things to every, and there's certain parts of your personality that just, you just need to have them. And I'm not a big pep talk guy. Mm. If you need a pep talk before you're walking out into one of the most dangerous things that you're ever going to do, then we're not the, the right people for each other. Like that, that it's, Hey man, this is your time. You know, where you, you got it like little things like that, but nothing, no Newt Rockney rah, rah kind of thing. Cause if you need that, that we made too many mistakes before the fight to, to, to help you. I think from your perspective, what's the biggest match you ever cornered for? Biggest we corner. I cornered Tim Williams twice at the UFC. Awesome. So from a perspective, cornering twice at the UFC is it it's like being a coach in the NFL. So that's the highest level that I've ever coached at. You could have one of your matches back that you cornered, which one would it be? 
one of the matches back that I cornered. It's tough because I'm not the one out there. So it would be unfair of me to say, I want this one back. I want that one back. It would be easy to say this loss or that loss, but it, all of that gets us to where we're at. The losses suck, but that was back then. We don't, if you're smart, you don't carry them with you to this day. You use them as motivation. So yeah, you know what? It, it, probably none of them because it's gotten us to where we are now. Uh, that's a phenomenal answer because you look at it like it, you look at anyone at a high level. It's learn from it and let go because you carry it with you. It's just like an anvil and you go nowhere with it. So that's uh, it's a great perspective there. Rewinding a little bit back, how did you run into the Miglerese brothers, Phil and Ricardo Miglerese? So you're at Maxercise. How did you wind up with them and going in their direction? They were the, Phil was the wonder kid at Maxercise. Like Steve Maxwell was the owner, but everybody knew that Phil was the jujitsu guy. Like just clearly talented and phenomenal. And he and I became fast friends. At one point we were roommates and the same thing. I was never a roommate with Ricky, but just gravitating towards those guys. They were the ones teaching most of the classes. So I met them right when I started training at Maxercise, it became fast friends. And then when they decided to do their own thing, it was no, it was a no brainer for me to go along with them. Looking back, what are some of the lessons you learned from Phil? Like some life lessons. When you think of why I learned this from Phil, what, what would it be? So I, I would say really more so the, the ability and the importance of teaching the detail. And there's something that even to this day, like outside of the martial arts, if you lose sight of the details, then that's where you start getting into trouble. Like everybody could do the broad stroke. You go on YouTube and learn about the mount or passing the guard or taking somebody's back, but it's the little details. And I had been in Phil's class a few years ago with another one of our black belts, uh, Phil's black belts, Kenny Brock. And I turned to him and I look around at everybody in the room and I go, these idiots aren't even paying attention to these little details that Phil is pointing out that's so natural to Phil that maybe he doesn't even realize how important or how groundbreaking that little detail is. So really what I learned from Phil is that, and this is, wasn't a direct lesson. This was a lesson through osmosis, was the importance of the details. Say there's a person out there today that wants to start BJJ and they're on the fence. What would you tell them? That it is really intimidating walking into any school that teaches a real martial art when I say a real martial arts, something you would see inside the UFC cage, right? So it's intimidating. So walk in there knowing that. Most of the time, it's once you walk in the door, hopefully they're disarming and charming. And they're going to let you know and feel that, hey, you know what? This is cool. This is fun. Be part of this community. You're really going to benefit from it. So if you're thinking about it, the easiest thing to do is to phone up a Brazilian jiu-jitsu school and Muay Thai school and say, Hey, I'm new. I want to try a class. Can you set me up? Like really at, at that point, most schools have gotten so much better at the business that they have classes and programs set up for people that have no experience and that, that are out of shape. They really have no excuse. Not being in shape isn't an excuse. Not having experience isn't an excuse. It being intimidating is a dilemma that you'll be less and less intimidated the more you come. And what do you think after someone who trained for a year, what do you think they could get out of it? Say they go two, three times a week and they, they stay with it. So a year later, how are they different? So I think if, 
especially if they've gotten into it for the right reasons, right? And like competition's awesome and fighting is great. But if they're looking for that place for, because I think the martial arts, when done well, gives you one of two things, either a single-minded focus while you're training or it empties your mind of everything while you're training. And what that does is that it helps wipe the plate clean of all of the stress and BS of your day. Doesn't make it disappear, just wipes it clean so that now you could approach it with that fresh plate again and that that plate doesn't overflow. So that's what I see in a year that it would be the, the greatest benefit you get. It's so true. You go in, you, everyone's got stuff, got the marbles bouncing around in your head, and then you go to a class and you learn for 40 minutes, 45 minutes, and you roll two, three, four times. And at the end, you're tired, but exhilarated, you're like energized. You're tired, for sure. yeah. but you're energized and you leave there. And those two or three problems bouncing around in your head while they're still there, you're like, oh, I got this. And ideas start bouncing in. Well, I could just do that. Or what if I did this? And then all of a sudden ideas and creativity start bouncing in. Once you wash your mind clean, I think that's the biggest benefit, even more than the being able to defend yourself or escape from a headlock like that. Yeah. All that stuff is like, it's ultimately nonsense. Like the look. Joe, when's the last time you got into a street fight? 25 years ago. <laughs> okay. So the, like for us to say we were using it for self-defense is that's a byproduct of why, what we're using. Without a doubt. So I want to fast forward a little bit here. You are a co-host of the popular Ninja Rob. Main co Just so that we're clear. Okay. So that Tim Carpenter doesn't main co-host. You are the main co-host. Take that, Tim, uh, of the Ninja Rob podcast. So what made you start the podcast? Myself, Tim, and a couple of other of our buddies, we would get around my computer. I had microphones. I had a digital recorder. And we would, re I have maybe 10 or 15 never released episodes of different podcast iterations that we tried that we just never followed through on because the tech aspect of it was too cumbersome. It was just, man, I got we got to do four people. We got to set up microphones. I got to get the, each microphone has to have its own channel. Then I got to clean the audio and so forth and so on. So I loved learning about it. I loved doing it. But then post-production became, I was like, man, I, all right. So I, they're sitting on my hard drive and they're hilarious. One of my students, Devin Wade, I didn't know this at the time. Well, he was on a, a extremely popular podcast and he owns a studio. And I go, bro, you have a podcast studio? He goes, yeah. I was like, I'm dying to get this podcast off the ground. He goes, yeah, come, just come use my studio. He goes, all you got to do is sit down in front of a microphone. And when you're done, I send you a completed file. Boom. Perfect. So it was the workflow that I needed. Yep. Right? I didn't have to do anything. I still have all the equipment that I bought. I love having it, especially if I have to go mobile or I talk to you. I have my microphone now. I have a, a little bit of a better camera. But I said, Timmy, I was like, yo, we should get this. We should do the podcast again. And the my main focus for starting the podcast was to be able to cement myself as a subject matter expert in the field of martial arts. And I believe for Timmy, it was the same thing, but also it was, it's just another way for us to be around each other, have fun, sit down, talk with a friend, that kind of thing. Well, how many episodes did it take you to feel like, you know what, we're, we're doing that? I think you're at 115 something episodes. Right uh, 112. Wow. Awesome. I start everything as an experiment. I'm going to do this four or five times. Everything I ever started, I'm not committing for the rest of my life. I want to do 10, 12. If I love it, I'm all in. When did you realize this is going from an experiment? This is what we're going to do every week. I don't think we ever went into it as an experiment. At least I didn't. I went into it like I could do this. I could commit an hour to an hour and a half of my life every week 
without fail. And I've been on, we did 112 episodes. I think I've done 110 of them. I've only missed two just for various things. Mm -hmm. But I was, I know we could do this because I also believe in who we are as like two dudes that could talk about martial arts and life that will never run out of things to talk about and opinions to pass on to people. And I was like, we'll keep doing this until the wheels fall off. That's great. Fantastic. So one of the things you spoke about the last few episodes that you got during COVID got COVID. Yes. Can you, can you speak about that? For sure. COVID was a lot of fun to have. It's clearly not fake. And we had my, so the way it went is my wife had caught it from someone that had come to visit the home that we were under the impression that they were vaccinated, but they weren't. And we hadn't gotten our vaccinations as of yet. And so then the next day they phone us up and they say, this person tested positive for COVID. My wife, I was like, we were socially distanced. We were all wearing masks. I had the, we had the windows open. I go, I don't know. I think, I think we should be okay. And I had been doing jujitsu all throughout the pandemic. So I go, this is almost going to be impossible for me to not have had it. And I was just operating under the impression that I had been asymptomatic because I was around people at my school that wound up testing positive like the next day after training with them before I had it. Wow. So then uh, my wife starts to get a little sick, but she has allergies. And well, one thing leads to another. She gets tested. She tests positive. I get sick. I get tested. The kid, we, the kids were tested twice. They never tested positive, but they did show like they, they, all three of them had pretty high fevers for one, one or two days. And then it went away while, while we were all sick. Now my, my de- dealings with COVID actually took me to the hospital. So I was in the hospital for four or five days with, wow. Them. What were your yeah. symptoms? What'd you have? Like, what did it feel like? So I had the, the first five days I had a, like a medium grade fever. And then the sixth day, the fever went away. And then on the seventh day, the fever came back, which wow. uh, now I'm learning is a, is some not uncommon for that to happen. And so just like the, the fever, general body ache, but nothing like this is, was never the worst I've been sick. It's the longest I've been sick. And Jay Campbell, one of Phil's black belts. Yeah. So he's a doctor and he calls me, we're very dear friends. And he calls me like by the ninth day that I'm dealing with this, he says, Hey man, he goes, this is going far too long because you should take yourself to the emergency room. I'm worried you might have pneumonia. That's why you're not getting better. So I call another one of my friends who's an MD, a former student. And he goes, yeah, you're sick. It's not like you're going to die, but you should follow NJ's advice. Mm-hmm. So I take myself to uh, Jefferson Hospital in Center City, Philadelphia. I drive by Methodist Hospital. I'm like, I'm not going to go to a neighborhood hospital. I'm going to go. I'm going to go to Center City where, you know, where the good doctors are. And uh, it looked like a mash unit. In the, in, wow. in the, the reason they kept me was my pulse ox was lower than they liked. And they said, we're not going to let you go home until your pulse ox gets better. And it, it's uh, a very common problem when you have COVID. But the, my issue was like, I never really had any problems breathing. I was never winded, like those, those kinds of things. But I'm, I attribute that maybe to doing martial arts my whole life and getting strangled seven days a week that mm-hmm. being lacking a little bit of oxygen is not that big of a deal. Well, How did you know it was time to leave the hospital? So they told me my pulse ox was better. And funny enough, the hospital that I drove past was the hospital that I was staying in. Oh, because really? there was, it was the hospital that had the room for COVID patients. I, uh, I walked home from the hospital because the hospital was three blocks from my house. I knew it was, I was doing much better when I could walk three or four blocks without a problem. Awesome. I'm glad you made it, man. Glad you made yeah, it. Yeah, and I was training like a week after. It wasn't, don't get me wrong. 
there was like some anxiety and I think it was like weighing on me. Like yeah. uh, it's tough to breathe. Is this real? Is it not? Again, it's no laughing matter, but it, you know, was, was it the worst I've ever been sick? I want to hit you with a couple of topics you mentioned over the Ninja Rob podcast. Just want to yes, get sir. your quick perspective on them. In their prime, Elio Gracie fighting Bruce Lee. Valley Tudo, not Jiu-Jitsu. Valley yeah. Tudo, who wins? Elio Gracie. Gotcha. Same question. In their prime, Valley Tudo. Gordon Ryan, Hicks and Gracie. Hicks and Gracie. Yeah, I'm with you there. Most overrated technique in Jiu-Jitsu. <sighs> Most overrated technique in jujitsu. I don't, I don't know. What would you say, Joe? What, what do you think is the most overrated technique? My jujitsu game is so focused on self-defense that like right. the, when I see Baron Bolo, like I would never do that in the street, even if I don't get another fight in 25 years, right. like point competition, that's zero interest in my little world. I'm like Baron Bolo. I could go away forever. And uh, yeah, yeah, if you're coming from your perspective of that, then yeah, I, I would agree with you. But I think everything has a time and a place. And I started doing jujitsu because I wanted to fight like Hoist Gracie, but I didn't stay doing jujitsu because I wanted to fight like Hoist Gracie. Like the sport of it be became really interesting. Mm -hmm. Awesome. What's the first move you think a new jujitsu student should learn? First class, what's it look like? So for us, and we have, we just reinstituted our fundamentals class and the very first fundamentals class, which is, so I'll back up my opinion with a fact of this is how we run our, our fundamentals class was how to deal with somebody throwing a sucker punch, bl okay. punch block closing the distance after that. So dealing with th those are the first things that somebody should learn because if you're not, if you don't know how to strike, then, and you're telling me you want to come here for self-defense, dealing with strikes is the first thing you should learn. Thanks for sharing that. Here is a little part I like to call share your secrets. What's the biggest challenge you ever faced in your life? Probably the pandemic and the, the pandemic and being able to have my business survive through that. Do you have a favorite failure? Is there a failure that set you up for a future success? Yeah, every single one of them. Getting thrown out of high school, getting thrown out of a college, being terrible at jujitsu at every belt level, right? When I was a blue belt, I was the worst. When I was a purple belt, I was the worst. When I was a brown belt, I was the worst. When I'm a black belt, I was the worst. But here I am, successful and good. Just keep going, keep yeah. grinding. That's 100%. Awesome. What a life lesson there. Uh, when you need to clear your mind or recharge your body, what do you do? I go to my school. What book influenced your life or changed your mind? So Into the Wild, John Krakauer. Mm -hmm. It's the story of a young man that decides to burn. It's a true story to burn all his worldly possessions, go across the country into Alaska. They made a movie about it. And I had never encountered anybody like this in my life, never read about anybody like this in my life. And had I not read that book, I don't teach professionally and leave the, the comfort of a job in health insurance. Even though the, the ending of that story isn't uh, great, the young man dies because of the decisions that he makes, but he dies doing what he wanted to do, not what somebody else wanted to do. Awesome. When you are at your best, what are you doing? Teaching. What's your personal definition of success? Living like a billionaire without the money. <laughs> That's all. I've never heard that before. That is awesome. How about right now, looking at your academy or your podcast, what's the most exciting project you're working on now? So just the idea that I'm in a position 
that my main focus is getting my students to maximize how good they can be. So I'm in a, in a position financially with the business that I don't need to serve many masters with the, the business aspect of it. So I don't have to dumb down a lot of things to keep people in. I could, we could hit it hard and be aggressive and I could work on maximizing getting people better as opposed to maximizing any profit potential. What values do you try to pass on to your students? Consistency. I think that's probably the biggest one. And, and also like uh, strength of character, like showing that the good, bad, or indifferent, we're here to do what we need to do. Like you're having a bad day, show up, you'll have a better day. Yeah. That's what I do. Like I had some, like a very, a very dear friend of mine passed away yesterday and it was very sudden and it came out of left field and somebody that I would consider to be like a brother, maybe even closer. So much so that when I told my mother he passed away, you would have thought that one of her kids died. And the first place other than being around my family and kids that I wanted to be at was around my students because I knew that I could at least clear my mind there. You mentioned you grew up in South Philly. If you could go back and talk to all the people sitting around the family dinner table when you were 10 years old, right. your dad, your mom, maybe your brother, if he was there, what would you want to tell them? You may not understand them, but he's working on figuring it out. And that's one of the things that I get from my family is they don't understand who I am as a person, who I've become. And I think a lot of that has to do with what the martial arts has been able to uh, bring out of me because they're very, they're very stuck in a formula and I don't subscribe to that formula. If you had to get a quote or motto tattoo on your body, what would that yes. quote or motto say? What you do for yourself dies within you. What you do for others remains immortal. If, it, I might be paraphrasing the quote. I believe it's Da Vinci. Da Vinci. I think Da Vinci is about as good a spot as any to end. The professor, Marco Peraza, thank you for joining us. It's an honor to have you and I really appreciate your time. If people are looking for you online or New Jersey martial arts or Ninja Rob podcast, where can they find all your good stuff online? Yeah. If you just search Ninja Rob podcast, our website shows up. It's, I believe it's ninjarob.com. And if you're looking for martial arts, you could go to mapleshademma.com or just look for me on social media. If you have any questions for the podcast, send them in. Feel free. Marco, thank you for your time. It's an honor to have you on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you.